Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our Heritage.org website on all of these occasions. We would ask in-house guests to make that last courtesy check that mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. And, of course, for those watching online, you're welcome to send questions or comments at any time simply emailing speaker at Heritage.org. Following today's presentation, it will, of course, be posted on the Heritage homepage for everyone's future reference. Leading our discussion is Walter Lohman, who serves as director of our Asian Studies Center. He also serves as an adjunct professor at Georgetown University, where he leads graduate seminars on American foreign policy interests in Southeast Asia and the role of Congress in Asian policy. Prior to joining Heritage, he served as Senior Vice President and Executive Director of the U.S. ASEAN Business Council. He has also served as Senior Professional Republican Staff for the Foreign, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, aiding both Senators Jesse Helms and John McCain. Please join me in welcoming Walter Lohman. Walter, thank you. Hey, thanks, everyone, for calling, uh, for coming out. Thanks to folks online for, for tuning in. Um, we hope to have a good discussion today about U.S.-Europe cooperation on the China challenge. Um, over the last couple of years at Heritage, we've been exploring this little by little. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm just back from a trip to, to, to Europe where I talked to a lot of friends there about this, gave a couple, uh, gave a couple addresses myself uh, to think through exactly where we are. Uh, we're not the only one in this space. Um, I should recognize the German Marshall Fund in particular who have done a lot of work on U.S. Um, Europe uh, working together on issues that we have in, in Asia, common interests. Um, and there are some other groups that have been doing it, but for heritage, it's, it's becoming a greater priority for us uh, by the day. And that's because I think um, it starts from a very simple premise, and that premise is that the U.S. and uh, Europe share a certain set of values, commitment really to universal values, and we have a track record of working together over decades to bring them to bear on common interests that we have around the world. Uh, we have our differences, uh, that's for sure, from time to time, but, but fundamentally we're on the same page. Yet as you look across Europe and you look at the common interests we do have in, I mean, when you look across uh, Asia and you look at the common interests we do have there um, and the common interests we have in dealing with China in particular, I don't think we're talking to each other nearly enough, even given all the great work the German Marshall Fund does and all the rest that have been trying to bring attention to this issue. So today we brought together a few experts to help us think through maybe uh, where some of those shared interests are and what we could do um, to better effectuate uh, our, our uh, common approaches. Uh, first, we're going to turn to Teresa Fallon. Uh, Teresa is director of the Center for Russia, Europe, Asia Studies in Brussels, Belgium, which she founded in 2016. 
Um, let me just mention a few things from her bio. She's also a member of CSCAP EU and a non-resident senior fellow at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Uh, previously, previously, she was senior associate with the European Institute for Asian Studies in Brussels and a member of the Strategic Advisors Group for the NATO Supreme Command Europe. She's lived and worked in Beijing and was educated at University of Chicago, Loyola University, and London School of Economics and Political Science. Um, with that, I'm going to let Teresa start us off, and then I'll introduce each of the other speakers before they, they, uh, they speak, and then we'll open it up to Q&A when everyone's done and hope to have a discussion. Good afternoon, everyone. I felt right at home when I saw a Chicago pizzeria right outside the door, so you're really lucky here. Um, <laughs> Washington, D.C. is so exciting compared to Brussels, so it's been an interesting time to be here, and I'm really honored, and thank you for coming here today. EU, the triangle of EU-U.S.-China relations is quite uh, dynamic, and right now we see a lot of concern about the relations, but I, I would recommend um, as I've been sitting in Brussels now for 10 years watching this relationship, and I think it's very, very important that the U.S. continue to value it because there's so many things, as Walter pointed out, of values in common. So I'm going to just briefly give you kind of a broad brush view of how EU sees China, how China sees EU. So to begin with, um, China kind of sees Europe as kind of wearing down old and maybe needs help with global governance. And so they're kind of trying to cultivate this relationship. With the Belt and Road Initiative, all roads do lead to Europe, but they have to get through Central Europe, Central Asia first. So the end point and the markets uh, are in Europe from that economic, uh, there are six or seven economic corridors, but one of the most important for the, is the European end. Um, it's also a source of technology. Uh, we've seen a lot of the technology that Chinese companies can't buy in the U.S., they can buy in Europe because there's a very fragmented regime. Uh, there's Out of the 28 member states, only 14 actually have something in place to uh, vet uh, foreign investments. So about two or three years ago, I was doing research on this, and I was told it would never happen at the EU level. Each member state is actually quite jealous of foreign investment. They don't want, for example, say an Italian in charge of uh, at a, an EU official say, I will screen investment for all of Europe. It will be done by a group, but each member state's jealous of that. So it's been very hard to get through. But within two years, it's being considered now at the EU level to have a foreign direct investment screening mechanism. And that was largely uh, discussed by Germany, France, and Italy. They brought a letter to the European Parliament and Commission, and it's being um, sped up. Most people thought it would take about two years to get this through, and it's been telescoped, and it will be one year. Many also think that it will be toothless, weak, not very important, but there's an interesting value uh, at the EU level. And I was recently in Norway at a conference, and I was surprised when they asked me, when is the foreign direct investment mechanism, when is that going to be passed? And I thought that was strange. Why are the Norwegians so interested in this? They're not a member state, but they're part of the... Um, trade area, and they would also be part of the acquis. So once Brussels, once this is in place, even Norway will be able to say to China, we'd love to sell you that port or that business, but we can't. Brussels won't let us. So it's kind of a typical thing that Brussels is kind of carrying the can for a lot of these countries. And we've seen that happen in the past with the, the arms embargo, for example. Uh, China tried to bilaterally um, negotiate with EU member states to lift the arms embargo, but each one would say, we'd love to do that, China, but Brussels won't let us. So uh, 
Britain might miss this useful uh, um, aspect of blaming the EU for everything. The other issue is China's actively trying to cultivate global governance with Europe. They feel that with the weight of the EU and China, they can help carve out uh, new institutions. We saw that with the AIIB, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. The U.S. had lobbied um, some members not to join, and for example, the U.K. joined without even a heads up. So there is some working together with China on these new institutions. But there's a clash of values. For example, um, back at the Munich Security Conference, Fu Ying, not in her written remarks, but she said before the remarks, which I saw, she said, there is no such thing as universal values. They are American values. I see you all nodding your head in agreement with me. Well, that was a bit of a shock to the audience because in Europe, they're very proud of enlightenment and they don't think of universal values as something that are American. Excuse me. Okay, so how does Europe see China? Um, they see it as a very important place for uh, technology. The Europeans are also perceiving China as a you know, major market. Uh, it's a huge population, a, a big market, and uh, also a source of investment right now in Europe. The other thing Europe fears is a G2, that the US and, and China will work out some sort of accommodation and not really take European interests to heart. So they're, they're very worried about that. And Europe, as Juncker said, um, Europe is more than just a single market, more than money, more than the euro. It is always about value. So the one thing that Europe does stand for is values and rule of law. All right. So um, going on about foreign direct investment in Europe. So we've seen uh, it dramatically increase from a very low period uh, in the early 2000s to dramatic uh, increase. But the problem now is that it's very difficult for Euro European businesses to invest in China. There are a lot of controls. Every year, the European Chamber of Commerce has a, a bigger book of complaints. So it's becoming more difficult for them to invest. Um, there's Communist Party cells that are expected to be put into each company. There are questions about, will those um, people have to be promoted? How does that really work? Uh, things have to be left on the kind of Chinese servers. So there's a, difficulty repatriating profits, so it's becoming more and more difficult for European businesses to make profits in China. And this is a little bit of, uh, of an irony, because at Davos, as you recall, when Xi Jinping gave his speech and he got a standing ovation, he was um, looked at as a, a protector of globalization. And so if you talk to European businessmen, they wouldn't quite agree with you. So. The other interesting uh, dynamic, China has been investing dramatically in Europe, a lot of mergers and acquisitions, not necessarily greenfield investments, but we've seen a dramatic increase in, in port investments from nothing to 10% increase. So China has uh, some ownership of ten, over 10% of the ports surrounding Europe. Over Easter break, I went to the port of Genoa. Um, I was at a, a conference and a young man sitting next to me with CEFC told me he was looking at investment there. So I thought, you know, I better take a look at this, this port. And he jokingly said no one had invested in it since um, Christopher Columbus. Well, it needs some investment, but I think they've done something uh, there since then. But um, the Chinese are there and they've been cultivating these relationships. I was told that they had been looking at this port annually for the last dozen years. So it's not something just with the Belt and Road. This predates the Belt and Road. So they've been doing a lot of research and work for a long period of time. And as you know, with the foreign, um, there is an FTA with Switzerland. It's the first country in Europe that they have an FTA with. So if they were to develop these ports 
and then build a rail to Switzerland. You know, this is an interesting economic corridor that they're carving out for themselves. The other issue that is um, worrisome for Brussels is a 16 plus one. It's in Central and Eastern Europe. It's 11 EU member states and four possible accession member states. And China, it doesn't take a lot of money there. So if you look at the graphs, Germany, France, Italy have far more investment, Britain. But these are smaller countries. Uh, they, and they don't, have company, uh, they don't have companies that ask for reciprocity in, in China. So it takes a little bit of money, and they get a lot of influence there. So we've seen, for example, with the arbitral tribunal decision uh, back two years ago in regard to China versus Philippines. And everyone expected that the EU and the US could even make a joint statement in support of rule of law and the arbitral tribunal decision. But instead, Hungary and Greece held out. So the EU was forced to make a watered-down statement. So we've seen evidence of Chinese investments um, actually making it more difficult for Europe to speak with one voice. There are other examples. For example, Greece recently blocked the statement at the UN on human rights. So these investments are paying off in terms of foreign policy statements by the Europeans. And China is uh, really uh, very active with their public diplomacy in Europe. They've had some amazing things for Chinese New Year. Um, this is the year of China, uh, Europe tourism. So they're really promoting uh, China and um, it's becoming very, you know, it's very popular. Many people are saying Chinese in the school. Okay, so what does this all mean for Europe? Europe does need to help prepare long-term solutions. I mean, some have asked, is there convenient marginalization coming to an end? In the past, we saw uh, Europe kind of think Asia's far away. We really don't have to worry about that. But when, with the reframing of the Indo-Pacific narrative in that sense, it brings Asia closer to the Europeans. They have FTAs, uh, uh, free trade agreements with Japan. Uh, with Singapore, this region is coming closer and closer. It's more important for their trade. So the sea lines of communication are very important for Europe. Um, they have a lot of investment in the region, and they have um, broad outreach to ASEAN member states. So there was uh, a wake-up call for them with the rare earths embargo, which took place in 2010. So Europeans started to understand that what happens there, um, for example, it was a Japanese um, ship and a Chinese shipping vessel, which led to this crisis, and the informal rare earths embargo, which really affected German industry. So Europeans really do understand that what happens in that region has a, uh, an effect on their economies. All right. I'm sorry, I'm getting really dry mouth. Sorry. <laughs> Too much coffee. And the other thing is, Europe tends to think of Russia. Russia's right in their neighborhood. But there's an echo effect going on. So we talk about the little green men that were in Crimea, but there's also the little blue men. So we see Russia and China kind of watching each other, seeing what they can get away with, what the international um, community's response is. So Europe really does have um, a stake in, in the international order and these norms. And they're very concerned about the Arctic, which is also becoming closer to them. So we have the um, Belt and Road Initiative, which goes overland. We have the Maritime Silk Road, but also the Arctic Silk Road. So all of these will affect Europe from one, in one sense or another. And then lastly, we've seen, which is unusual, I think, for Americans to think about Europeans doing activities in Asia Pacific, but France has Pacific islands, uh, New Caledonia and French Polynesia. And in April, they had, April 2017, they had um, 
an amphibious task force there and with doing exercises with the Japanese. So it was a French ship, two British helicopters, and someone from Kawazi, which is from the European Council. He was there physically on the boat as a, as a representative of the EU. So, of course, China had two television programs to complain about this. They really want to nip this type of behavior in the bud. But it was also an important um, symbol to Asia that Europe does care and that they are in the region. So looking ahead, um, Europe is writing the elements for an EU strategy on connecting Europe and Asia. It's not supposed to be a response to the China's Belt and Road Initiative. They want to come up with their own connectivity. Um, Eurasia is very important to them as well. So that's due to be out in June 2017. And I suggest that EU and US maybe compare notes on this and talk to each other. To conclude, China's economic expansionism tends to erode European values. We're seeing, for example, I mean, we know that there's a rise of China and there are these um, issues going on, but what happened to some of the values that everyone is talking about? For example, um, the Cambridge University Press, one of the most prestigious journals in the world, agreed to self-censor in order to get into the Chinese market. So we see kind of an erosion of values that if the world's most prestigious journal is willing to self-censor, what does it say about you know, these so-called values? Europe needs to help preserve and strengthen international norms and a rules-based system. You know, they need to um, also carry the load. Uh, the U.S. and Europe should work together and magnify. Uh, you know, they tend to magnify each other's interests and, and uh, hold up the rules-based system. And then a multi-speed Belt and Road Initiative will remain an important aspect of Xi Jinping's foreign policy and diplomacy and may have a long-term effect of weakening the EU. I mentioned the uh, 16 plus one, but we also see China trying to carve out two other sub-regional groupings, the Nordics and then the Mediterranean. So the official rhetoric is that we're, we love to see the EU work as one, but reality, you know, they're, they're working with smaller groups within the EU and getting more leverage. So the typical of many other countries of divide and rule. So thank you for your attention. Good, thank you, Teresa. Um, you know, just a quick comment on the Fu Ying thing. Um, I think we all have, dealt with Fu Ying over the years and know her and, uh, and know she's an extraordinarily smart woman. And um, what I would suspect is going on there is that she is um, uh, tapping into some of the skepticism in Europe about Trump and his commitment to those values. So that's what she's, I don't think she's looking at what those universal values really are. What she's trying to say is, I'm on your side, Donald Trump's crazy, and you know, we know he doesn't, he doesn't agree with all these things. You know. That was before he was president, so it was two years oh, ago. Oh, okay. Oh, that's really, oh, yeah, I didn't realize that. Well, yeah, that's totally different then, yeah. I, I, yeah. That's a good analysis. And, and tell you the truth, I don't, I, yeah, I mean, it's hard to understand what, what she's saying, uh, if that's the case. And and I was just going to mention on the, uh, the, the point you made about the, uh, operation in South China Sea, um, led by the French, um, I, I think we we overlook the extent to which the French are involved in making these demonstrations. And that one was, um, that one was in cooperation with, with the Brits and others, uh, and had an EU representative in there, but they're, they're 10 times in the last two years making demonstrations at a, at a national level, uh, unlike anyone else, uh, I think, uh, next to the United States. So, uh, Philippe, I want to turn to you, but let me um, let me uh, give everyone a couple couple notes on your background. Um, Philippe Lacour is a fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard Kennedy School. 
Uh, most recently, before this, he was visiting fellow with Brookings. That's where, that's where he and I met. Um, he previously served as special assistant and counselor for international affairs to the French Minister of Defense and as a senior policy analyst on Northeast Asia within the Ministry of Defense's director, Directorate for Strategy. He started his career as a foreign correspondent based in Asia from 1988 to 1998. Uh, Philippe is the author of four books, including China's Offensive in Europe, which I read and recommend, and I, I assume is still available at Brookings in the, in the bookstore, uh, Quand la Chine va au marché, and Après Hong Kong, uh, two books in French, so if you can access the French, I guess you can buy those books as well. Uh, Lecour uh, received his uh, BA and his MA in political science from the Sorbonne in Paris. So uh, Philippe, let me turn it over to you. Thank you very much, uh, Walter. Delighted to be here and uh, also to be um, in Washington for a few days. Um, and um, this is a very timely topic, obviously. Uh, President Macron will be visiting uh, Washington next week. and. Um, I don't suspect China will be on the very top of the agenda, but um, it, it is sort of part of the dialogue going on between the, the two sides of the Atlantic, uh, it's fair to say. Um, let me just start by uh, picking up on some of uh, Teresa's remarks um, by saying also uh, that perhaps the, the system, the trade system that we are evol evolving in um, has uh, has changed a lot since uh, World War II, and and that it, it is somewhat crumbling, um, uh, at least uh, from the uh, origins of what the, uh, the the sort of winners of World War II were hoping that we were going to live in this uh, um, rules-based international order, and that that uh, you know the. Um, the West would be benefiting from it, as we can see from the from the recent uh, uh, wave of um, uh, elections, particularly in Europe. Um, you know, it's it's the 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 imbalance of trade and the imbalance brought by uh, um, uh, the, the economic system is leading to uh, populism and um, and things that that that. that that are similar to a sort of a backlash to, uh, against globalization. So who's benefiting from this? Obviously, China is one of the big winners, and, um, and um, not just a winner, but also a proponent of, of, global, of globalization. As uh, Teresa was mentioning, uh, uh, Xi Jinping's uh, speech in Davos, uh, well praised by the Davos people. Um, they, all, they tend to praise everybody, though. If you go and speak there, it's, uh, but, but anyway, they, they, they were very impressed. Did they pre praise Trump? Uh, yeah, of course, of course. They praise everybody. Yeah. As long as you pay your ticket. Sorry. Um, but um, yes, I mean, any, um, uh, any attempt to criticize uh, um, uh, globalization is, is now uh, sort of um, receive a response by, by China that, that uh, you know, it's, it's basically uh, protectionism. So, um, so it's kind of a, we, we're living in a sort of reverse uh, uh, word where, where uh, China has become the most, um, the, the strongest advocate of, 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 of globalization and of the, the current trade system. So in, as, as Walter mentioned, I, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called um, China's Offensive in Europe. Uh, that explain the particularities of, uh, of Chinese FDI, particularly in Europe, but a little bit also uh, here in the U.S. And in fact, 70% uh, of these FDIs are um, um, state-owned. Um, and uh, I believe this level has increased since 
Um, and you could argue that even uh, uh, private investments have uh, received support from uh, state banks and Chinese funds. And so, you know, the, the irony of this system is that on one hand, you have a proponent of globalization and international trade. On the other hand, you have somewhat uh, kind of trade of, of, of state capitalism that has been um, um, implemented. Um, now, this system is not going to change. Uh, we, we can... Um, um, you can, we can advocate uh, regime change or things like that in China. It's never going to happen. Um, China is, has its own system. Um, the lifting of the two terms limit by, uh, by, by the NPC recently uh, is a sign that, you know, we, many of us had perhaps misread what, what was going on in China. Um, and uh, the reality is that China has its own uh, political system. Uh, it's not going to be like the Western model. Um, what does the EU want from China? Um, five things. Um, at least that was, the, that was the idea originally. Market economy, uh, greater respect for human rights. Um, um, they want uh, China to adhere to international norms and to ensure a, pl a level playing, playing field for um, domestic and foreign companies. And finally, to cut uh, uh, its in industrial overcapacity to ensure fair competition. Now, obviously, as, uh, as we heard before, um, the uh, level of, play of playing field within China is, is not that obvious, and there have been complaints about the lack of uh, market access. Um, none of these items will be um, sort of agreed by China in a straightforward uh, uh, sort of way, although, although it's been discussed. Uh, and, you know, every year there's this EU-China summit. Uh, the last one wasn't particularly successful, but, um, you know, there is a discussion going on, uh, certainly on climate, for example, um, and, and on, uh, on trade, on investments. Um, China would very much like to have a free trade agreement with, uh, with the EU. That's not going to happen anytime soon. And as far as investment is concerned, uh, I would say the discussions are also... Uh, stalled um, for all kinds of reasons. Uh, China sees Europe uh, in a quite a different way uh, uh, than the rest of the world. There are four blocks if you read Chinese materials. Uh, you have the four states, uh, sorry, the large states, that would be uh, the UK, Germany, France. You have uh, Southern Europe, you have Central and Eastern Europe, and you have the Nordics. So this is how China sees Europe. And of course, that has nothing to do with the EU. It's basically, you know, uh, for example, you'd have uh, Central Eastern Europe, the Balkans that are not EU members. They would be part of the same um, sphere. Um, now, of course, the, the EU has been around for several decades. It's about, it's a club, club of nations. It's, it's got mainly economic and, and trade powers. And it's a, it's a fairly organized club, so it may not match this, this, uh, this um, uh, um, division that I've just uh, described. So I think, you know, we need oh, sorry, to... Sorry, the division is the large states, small states? Well, the, the way, the way uh, I mean, China sees uh, Europe, uh, it would have sort of um, uh, bilateral relations with the large states, so the, the three main large states, that would be, you know, the UK, France, and Germany. He would see Southern Europe as a group of countries 
um, and he tried to organize it as as a kind of club, a little bit like the sixteen plus one, but 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 tried to to set up the five plus one. That didn't really work out, and also reached out to the Nordics to do something similar. Didn't work out either. But the idea is that you know when we talk about um, um, international rules, um, I mean the EU is not necessarily um, the, the the right um, platform for China to to sort of reorganize things the way it wants. So it does speak to the EU, to, to European institutions, but at the same time, it's setting up its own. In, in the Eastern Central Club. European is another box. Right, yeah. including the Balkans. Oh, I see. So I think, you know, uh, to answer uh, some of the questions you asked, Walter, I think, you know, um, the, the U.S. should sort of um, help the EU to, to sort of enhance its um, uh, momentum and, and, to, and to, um, to have its voice uh, heard uh, as, a, as a group of countries because it, it is the rules-based... Um, um, organization, the one that in trade and investment is trying to organize things, um, unlike some of the groupings I've, I've mentioned, formal or informal. Um, EU, you know, the EU is very strong on values, and uh, this is what we need to focus on. So um, that that would be my first uh, my first point. Um, now, there are several points where we, we need to, to you know, work together uh, on, as a transatlantic community. Obviously, trade is one. Um, there are you know, similar um, problems, um, including dumping and including state aid. Um, FDI is something you know, uh, that has been looked after at the moment, but obviously it's taking some time. But both Congress here in the U.S. and the uh, European Parliament are now looking at um, um, FDI screening and uh, this kind of thing, um, and then and then um, uh, reciprocity. Uh, again, I mean the uh, EU Chamber of Commerce and the AmCham in China have been sort of uh, um, criticizing the lack of um, um, openness of the Chinese market. This this is probably about to change because I believe China is going to make some some decisions on this. Um, and last but not least, connectivity, which is something really, um, I mean, uh, we mentioned the, 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 the Belt and Road, um, but certainly the EU does have to come up with an alternative plan. Um, it's, not really an alternative, it's not going to be an alternative plan per se, but it will offer um, more ways to connect Europe. Europe is already fairly well connected, but, um, you know, it, within Europe, there are ways to... Um, um, connect Europe and the, and the rest of the world as well. Um, and that's going to come up very soon, really, um, in, in the summer uh, on, the, on the EU side. So, um, on, on the, um, so I would say, you know, the, the EU and the US as a, as a transatlantic community should, should develop um, um, an awareness of, of, the, uh, of, of, the, of the Western uh, model and, and certainly uh, that, that includes the rest of the world as well, because at the moment we have this situation where China is sort of offering its, its own model. I mean, I hear that sometimes in conferences where, you know, um, Chinese speakers say, well, you know, you, you, you now have a choice between the U.S. model and the, uh, and the Chinese model. I've heard that from uh, um, a fairly senior Chinese um, 
uh, academic. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it's good to have alternatives and to have different models. So at the moment, uh, I, I think two is probably not enough, and I think the EU model has to, to come up again. Um, I think, you know, uh, 2008 was a turning point in terms of uh, um, involvement of China um, on the economic level. Certainly, the, the, the level of Chinese investments has risen, both in the U.S., and um, in fact, everywhere, but, but, but in the EU particularly because of the financial crisis. Uh, so therefore, you know, it's, it's time that, you know, um, we, we address sort of the, uh, uh, the coming of a new, of a new player. Uh, there are different platforms for that. The, the G7 might be one. Uh, but, but I think, you know, on, certainly on, on investments, um, respecting international norms, rules, uh, certainly the EU rules in the EU um, is, should, be, should be a priority. And, and in fact, you know, uh, I would say areas outside, uh, uh, outside the EU and outside the US should also be uh, given alternatives to, to, to this new uh, uh, proposition. Good. Great, you. Great. Thank you, Philippe. Um, let me turn it over to Jamie. Uh, Jamie is uh, Jamie Fly, Senior Fellow and Director at Future of Geopolitics and Asia Programs at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Uh, Jamie was best known around town recently as the Senator Rubio's National Security Advisor, where he was from 2013. Prior to joining Senator Rubio's staff, he served as Executive Director of the Foreign Policy uh, Initiative. And prior to that, he was in the Bush administration at the National Security Council and in the Office of Secretary of Defense. Jamie received his BA in International Studies and Political Science from American University and an MA in German and European Studies from Georgetown University. So with that, let me turn it over to Jamie. Thanks, Walter. Uh, it's great to be back at Heritage, and I'm glad that uh, Heritage uh, is continuing to engage on uh, these issues related to transatlantic cooperation on uh, Asia. So I'm going to divide my comments up into uh, four parts. First, um, I'm going to approach this primarily uh, directed at an American audience. Um, I share my uh, fellow panelists' assessment of the situation, and I want to talk a little bit about what is the case uh, for transatlantic cooperation on Asia, because honestly, I don't think there's enough realization about the need for transatlantic cooperation on Asia and China, more specifically in Washington. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about why the EU uh, is an Asian power that, that needs to be reckoned with. I'm going to talk about the modalities of how we can cooperate and then um, some specifics about uh, topics and issues we should cooperate on, some of which have been touched on uh, by my fellow panelists. So um, first, I'm going to, you know, my experience in this area uh, is fairly recent. I, as Walter said, my career started out in the transatlantic space, and then I took about a 15-year detour working on other issues, nonproliferation, the Bush administration, uh, Afghanistan, the Middle East, and pretty much all global issues when I was working for Senator Rubio. For two of the years I was working for Senator Rubio, he was the uh, ranking member on the Senate Foreign Relations uh, Asia Subcommittee. And in the course of my work uh, with him on Asia, I kind of uh, began to get into this space of exploring uh, transatlantic discussions about Asia, primarily as an attendee of some of the programs I now oversee at the German Marshall Fund. And I was shocked when I got into those transatlantic conversations and realized uh, how the European view of China in particular had shifted in recent years and how much commonality there was between American uh, China watchers and their colleagues uh, in, in Europe. 
Um, and so a lot of my uh, comments kind of stem from what I've seen in the, the various convening that the German Marshall Fund uh, does on a regular basis to bring Asia experts on both sides of the Atlantic together. Um, so why should we cooperate? Uh, for me, and uh, Philippe talked about this a little bit, first and foremost, I see this as a question of the, the fate of the liberal international order. In the transatlantic space, we spend a lot of time these days bemoaning uh, the state of that order, um, questioning whether Donald Trump is a threat to that order, questioning whether our publics are a threat to that order, uh, populism in Europe, et cetera. But at the end of the day, I think all of the challenges we're going through right now will look uh, like hiccups if uh, we do not get our long-term Asia strategy right. Um, I think you can make the case that the fate of the liberal international order will be decided in, in the so-called Indo-Pacific. It will be decided based upon how we in the West um, and how democracies working with our allies and partners in the region manage China's rise and the uh, uh, the guards we put up on, on uh, the margins uh, and to try to direct China's rise. Um, if we're unsuccessful in that effort, I don't think such a thing as the liberal international order will be able to survive. And so I really see this as uh, the fundamental challenge that the transatlantic community should be discussing. Um, that's more obviously in the values space. Uh, when it comes to interest, as my pa fellow panelists have discussed, uh, our interests are increasingly aligned. Um, our security and our prosperity uh, depend on what happens in places like the South China Sea. Uh, that's, I think, and some of the concerns there about China's uh, island building uh, have influenced a lot of the shifts in thinking in uh, places like Germany, for instance, which depends on uh, global trade for the continued success of the German economy. We're facing similar challenges in the influence space. Um, we're doing a lot of work here in this town on Russian influence and Russian interference, uh, as are many of our European allies. But we're starting to see the leading edge of Chinese influence and Chinese interference, both at the political level, um, political influence, uh, attempts to buy political influence, uh, similar to what we've seen in places like Australia and New Zealand. Um, but then also in the economic area, where it's probably even more apparent, uh, and that was already discussed, uh, Chinese strategic investments uh, in the major European economies, um, intellectual property theft, again, all of the same challenges uh, that we see here uh, in, in the uh, U.S. Some might say, well, why don't we divide up this challenge? Uh, let Maybe the answer here is the Europeans need to play uh, more of a role in tackling the Russia challenge let the U.S. Uh, allocate more resources to Asia. Um, I don't think that's, that, that wouldn't work, first off. I think it's important that the U.S. remain engaged in helping to defend our uh, treaty allies in Europe uh, from a, uh, an aggressive Russia. But I also think uh, Russia is really a near to midterm challenge. Um, I think that uh, just given the nature of the internal dynamics in Russia, its uh, economy, its demographics, um, we're not going to need to be worrying about Russia, hopefully, in 10 or 15 or 20 years. Uh, China will be the main challenge that we're all facing. Um, I also don't think either of us can tackle this challenge alone. Uh, and if you look at what the EU brings to the table versus what the, uh, what the U.S. brings to the table, our strengths are really complementary. And I'll talk a little bit about that, uh, more about the, what the EU brings to the table um, in a minute. Uh, and uh, it's also not good, I think, and Americans off, often don't realize this. We like to talk about the pivot to Asia, the rebalance to Asia, the uh, increased focus on military resources in the region. 
And we have strong alliances, treaty allies, um, that not all the Europeans uh, have such deep relationships with a lot of the partners in the region. But we often forget that uh, it's not always good to just present a U.S. face. And the more we can uh, multilateralize our engagement, uh, whether it's freedom of navigation operations, which was already uh, referenced, um, whether it's even trade uh, and investment conversations, I think that's in our interest. And then finally, on why cooperate, I guess my uh, wearing my German Marshall Fund hat and as someone who started off my career 15 years ago working in transatlantic relations, uh, I would argue if we can't uh, tackle this problem together, then what's the point of the transatlantic relationship? Um, I've been struck as I've returned to the transatlantic debate uh, debates. Uh, a lot of the issues we're debating are the same ones we were debating 15 or 20 years ago, how to tackle Iran, uh, differences over climate. Uh, obviously, the Russia uh, challenge is a renewed, uh, a renewed one. But at a certain point, we need to figure out what uh, we as allies stand for uh, and what we can do together. And I actually think that one of the problems the transatlantic relationship has faced is that we haven't, since the end of the Cold War, uh, even with a resurgent Russia, always had a uh, clear uh, reason to work together and something to f uh, frame our cooperation around. And I do think... Uh, that this challenge might be won. So then uh, moving on to the case for the EU as an Asian power, which I, I think people uh, in this town often overlook. Obviously, there are the historical relationships uh, that many of the major EU powers uh, have, which have been referenced already. Some of them have overseas territories uh, as well. Obviously, given the strength of the EU 28 uh, and their economies, uh, if you just uh, look at the, the ranking of global uh, economies, uh, the EU, by some accounts, is the second largest economy behind uh, China, the US, right ahead of the U.S., which is third. That gives the U.S. and the EU together a lot of leverage in their uh, relationship and engagements with uh, the Chinese. Uh, the U.S. and EU are China's largest trading partners, again, uh, which makes how China handles those relationships with the U.S. and EU incredibly important. Um, if you look at what the EU brings to the table right now, yes, the EU is not a military power, even though individual European powers, like especially the French and the British, um, have those capabilities and do play that role uh, to a certain extent in the region. What they really bring to the table, though, is their economic cooperation, their forward-leaning uh, trade agenda in the region. And I think this is a very uh, clear complement to the traditional approach that Obama administration and now the Trump administration have taken with the rebalance to Asia. It tends to still U.S. policy be very heavy on a military rebalance. Um, the Obama administration put all their eggs in the Trans-Pacific Partnership basket. Uh, when that uh, fell apart, uh, there was very little left on the economic front. Um, the Trump administration, having uh, pulled the U.S. out of TPP, and then refocused on renegotiating uh, existing U.S. trade agreements, NAFTA, CHORUS, uh, is showing some glimmer of hope, I think, from my perspective, that they might rethink that and pursue some broad, a broader trade agenda in Asia. But for right now, uh, if you look at the advanced democracies uh, outside of the region, the EU is really the only one in the game. And when you talk to people at DG Trade in Brussels who are in charge of negotiations, um, they're going out country by country, uh, negotiating free trade agreements, uh, responding to what China is doing through its uh, attempts to negotiate uh, things like RCEP. And uh, the U.S. is really left with nothing to show for, uh, show for our uh, activities on the economic front in Asia. 
And so I actually think we could learn a lot from what the Europeans are doing, uh, following their lead on things like the EU-Japan uh, agreement, uh, their approach to the individual members of ASEAN, um, and even uh, Taiwan. Uh, I would argue that they're actually ahead of us in terms of thinking creatively about the possibilities with ta Taiwan. Now, they don't have a free trade agreement with Taiwan, uh, but there's a growing conversation about uh, investment talks with the Taiwanese that, quite frankly, have gone much further than you even would hear from the Trump administration in terms of its thinking about engaging Taiwan on investment. Um, India is the one country, by the way, that's where I think it's still lagging a little bit, uh, and that's not because the EU is not interested, it's uh, broader things uh, related to uh, you know, issues that the Indians aren't willing to overcome, and I think the U.S. has had similar experiences with the Indians thus far. Connectivity was also mentioned. I think that's another key area. I've been struck in my conversations with uh, the key officials in Brussels how far along they are in this mapping exercise that others have mentioned will be released later this year. Quite frankly, they're further along than the Trump administration in thinking through uh, a kind of holistic approach to uh, BRI response and looking at what resources the individual EU member states as well as the EU External Action Service and the Commission can bring to bear. Um, this administration, I think, realizes that this is an important issue. They've begun initial uh, conversations with the Japanese, Australians, and Indians. I think the Europeans uh, should be brought into that conversation because I think they have a lot to add. It's also worth noting that uh, an EU-India strategy is under development and will be released later this year as well, and I think there's a lot of complementarity there too um, in, in the transatlantic uh, way we can talk about uh, how to approach India. On security, it's already been mentioned a little bit, um, but I think in particular uh, we need to deepen our engagement with the Brits and the French. Uh, as they uh, develop their security relationships with many U.S. allies and partners in the region. Um, and the more we can do to get other countries to increase freedom of navigation operations, I think, uh, the better. So how exactly to cooperate, how to, uh, how to bring this more regularly into the conversation. There, um, I think the key, and, and it's a hurdle that this administration is going to have to overcome, because I think uh, we're going to have to partner first and foremost with the European Union. And that is something that I don't know that this administration uh, is willing to uh, think about yet, primarily because of some of the skepticism about the EU as an institution. Um, but in this area, it's necessary to have the sorts of conversations we need to have about trade, investment, uh, about things like connectivity. And so we're going to have to overcome any reluctance we have about engaging uh, Brussels. So we have a broader problem in the US-EU relationship right now. We don't have an ambassador uh, to the European Union. Um, and but partly because of that, and partly, I think, because of some of the irritants in the transatlantic relationship uh, from the people I've talked to, there's not even a clear sense of whether we'll have an annual US-EU summit this year. Um, and so we're even lacking in the mechanism of the summit where you can put China or Asia more broadly onto that common agenda. Um, so I think we need to solve some broader problems with US-EU relations first, but if we can do that and get in back into that habit of having uh, ongoing engagement between the US administration and the EU, I think Asia needs to be more regularly at, at the top of the list of things we engage on. Now, some of that needs to come from Washington, but I think from the Brussels perspective, European leaders also need to push this onto the agenda. I think there's a trap that many European leaders often fall into where the things that rise at the top of the agenda are either the crises of the moment 
there's North Korea, uh, or the irritants in the relationship, it's Iran, climate, all these issues where we know that there's probably not going to be a lot of agreement between Brussels and the Trump administration. We need to, on both sides of the Atlantic, realize that we need to carve out some space for areas where there is more convergence that we can essentially set aside from the disagreements and still find ways to work uh, with each other uh, in those other areas. The other thing we need more of, uh, and we do some of this at the German Marshall Fund, Heritage uh, is increasingly convening in this area. We need many more informal, unofficial interactions between uh, Asia watchers uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. I've been struck, again, coming into this space very recently. There's a whole transatlantic community of experts. They tend to be the same people who get together on both sides of the Atlantic to talk about the same issues, the future of NATO, uh, European uh, defense, uh, Russia, all these things. The uh, similar network of people who follow Asia uh, is very, very small. It's very limited. And Asia experts traditionally uh, kind of keep to themselves on both sides of the Atlantic. We need to break down barriers in academia and think tanks and broaden that space because when you actually bring experts together who are following these issues on either sides of the Atlantic, uh, there's a lot of uh, commonality. Um, the final thing I'll just say on how we can cooperate, I also think the free and open Indo-Pacific uh, framework that the Trump administration has laid out, which has been supported by uh, the Abe government of Japan, the Australians and others, is there an opportunity as well? There's been some talk in uh, Japan about the idea uh, of broadening um, the so-called quad, uh, Japan, India, Australia, uh, and uh, the U.S., and even bringing in the Europeans occasionally on certain issues. I think especially the French and the British would be value-add uh, when certain maritime issues are being discussed. And I think there needs to be a little bit more willingness to think outside the box and uh, uh, create a seat at the table for the Europeans in some of those areas. And then one final note for the Europeans as well on that is, again, this is not just a U.S. issue in terms of how the U.S. Uh, thinks about Asia and the transatlantic space. The Europeans have talked a lot uh, in recent months about permanent structured uh, cooperation in the defense realm, so uh, PESCO. But if you look at the list of initial projects, uh, Asia is nowhere to be found from what I've seen. Uh, and I think it's a real opportunity for Brussels uh, to match on the foreign policy and defense side what's already going on on the trade, investment, economic side, the connectivity side, and think creatively about how to use PESCO in the future uh, if it's going to move forward um, to come up with some common European projects uh, in the uh, Asian space. So finally, uh, four areas of spe uh, specific areas where I think we can cooperate on. It's already been discussed uh, quite a bit. The first and foremost, I'd say, is connectivity response to the BRI. There needs to be uh, significant engagement as the EU finishes this uh, mapping project that's going to be released later this year. I think there's been some working level contact already between the Trump administration and those in Brussels working on it. But that uh, needs to be deepened, and uh, the Europeans, I think, can be brought into those other conversations that are already happening with the Australians, Japanese, uh, and Indians. I also think it would be interesting to expand some of that to look at Chinese uh, activity outside of BRI in other regions of interest, uh, in particular Africa, to compare notes about what the U.S. and Europeans are seeing. We all, the U.S. and the European member states, had significant development assistance programs in many of these places. And I think just, again, more dialogue and conversation about uh, what we're seeing from the Chinese and where how we're allocating and directing our programs in response would be useful. 
Second, uh, has also been mentioned on trade uh, and strategic investment. On strategic investment, I think the, the clear thing there is uh, the Europeans have started a debate coming out of the Commission on an investment screening mechanism. Uh, we have a lot of discussion going on right now in the U.S. Congress about whether our CFIUS process needs to be reformed. It would be helpful for people to compare notes. Uh, it doesn't mean we're going to come up with the exact same investment screening on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, but I do think that if our investment screening uh, mechanisms are vastly different, it creates an opening for the Chinese to exploit uh, whichever one uh, is weaker. And so anyways, there should be more conversation about those reforms and proposals. Um, I, I am concerned that the Trump administration's uh, Section 232 and 301 actions really cast a shadow over potential cooperation in all of these areas. I don't think uh, it has to be that way at the end of the day. Um, I think we need to find a way to, uh, to uh, push back against unfair Chinese trade practices without harming our allies, and that goes uh, for our Asian partners as well, like the Japanese, uh, and not just the Europeans. Um, I read recently that the uh, Europeans are debating uh, whether to make an offer to the Trump administration to restart some scoping talks related to TTIP perhaps uh, to obtain that uh, next exemption uh, from the tariffs. I think the Trump administration should uh, embrace that opportunity if that's truly on the table. Uh, and uh, I think kind of moving forward with TTIP over the long run would be another major way that we could cooperate uh, in, this, in this space. Um, third, in the area of democracy and human rights, obviously there's been a lot of conversation already about our shared values. Um, that's everything from speaking out jointly together when necessary uh, about abuses uh, in China. I would also put in that basket, though, supporting our partners in places like Taiwan and Hong Kong. Uh, Taiwan, in particular, is increasingly isolated by Beijing. Uh, Beijing is in an all-out uh, effort to target President Tsai's policies to try to flip Taiwan's remaining diplomatic allies, to block Taiwan from uh, uh, international fora. And the more that we have U.S. and European voices engaging on those issues, I think the better. Um, it's, uh, Hong Kong is obviously a slightly different situation, but there you have a pro-democracy movement that's really beleaguered right now. It's under a lot of pressure, and I think it's in our interest uh, to speak out when uh, abuses uh, occur. We also have the broader problem in the region of democracies that are backsliding or already uh, uh, possibly no longer democracies, places like Thailand. Uh, Thailand. Um, obviously, then we need to work together in places like Vietnam and the Philippines to kind of uh, try to keep pushing them in the right direction. I know many of our European colleagues feel right now they're kind of lonely voices on these issues uh, because the Trump administration has not highlighted many of these challenges, but I think it's an area where we need uh, to have regular dialogues and build a common agenda. And then finally, um, and I mentioned this briefly earlier, I really think we need to begin a conversation about China's influence operations uh, in our democracies. We have a very well-developed dialogue now about Russian interference and Russian influence. We need to learn the lessons of uh, the Russian case, figure out the different characteristics of Chinese influence, uh, learn, like I said earlier, from countries like Australia and New Zealand that are kind of on the front lines of this right now. Uh, and, uh, and coordinate before we get to the point, as we did with Russia, where we wake up and they're directly interfering in our political debates on a daily basis, uh, and it's almost too late to do anything about it. 
Um, I would note in this area, too, the conversation a bit about uh, competing visions of uh, competing models and the, the way the Chinese uh, at times are basically trying to co-opt the liberal international order and argue that they are the true guarantors of that order. You can kind of see the success of some of these influence operations, I think, in the propaganda in Europe. I've been struck uh, by talking to some Europeans uh, who their view of the liberal international order skews towards multilateralism, certain international institutions, certain issues like climate, and if you're a European who cares primarily about climate, there's perhaps a Chinese case that maybe the Chinese are uh, more responsible actors than the Trump administration. I think we need to be very careful about letting the Chinese co-opt that narrative of the liberal international order and trying to fool um, some of our citizens into thinking that the, the Chinese are the true guarantors uh, of that order. So finally, um, I think the Trump administration has really made significant progress in boldly stating uh, what the long-term China challenge is. Um, I know the national security strategy also notes increasing Chinese influence in Europe and the need to cooperate with our European allies on this issue. But I don't think the Trump administration has been able to develop a coherent engagement agenda yet with our European partners. Um, I think from my experiences, the Europeans are perhaps more interested and more willing to have these conversations right now than the Trump administration. I hope that changes because I do think if you look at uh, all of the issues I outlined, our shared interests, our shared values, uh, it, it truly makes sense for us to find this common agenda. Uh, and I think that uh, if we don't, it's going to be very easy in the long run for the Chinese to selectively uh, play us against each other and do or do is what they're already trying to do. I think within the EU is pick off member states on various issues and undermine our, our long-term solidarity. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to open it up to, to questions. And while you while you think about uh, while you think about those questions, let me. Uh, I've got fifty, so um, I, I can throw some out there. And but but I did want to start with um, uh, one uh, to Philippe. Philippe, you talked about the sixteen plus one and some of these other efforts, sort of conceptually for the Chinese to divide Europe and treat it the way that it would rather treat it, uh, rather than through the EU. Um, but at some level, don't the Chinese understand the system well, and that's why they're developing this the way they are? That is that they know that member states are divided between their approach to the EU and their approach to their own capital, um, and that and that, that mix of, of uh, approach changes from capital to capital, right? And so they, what they're doing is actually really smart by trying to divide Europe because there are divisions that are easily dividable. Uh, so, so in the end, what, what dooms their approach to failure or is it doomed to failure? So when you ask to um, um, Chinese officials about the 16 plus one, <clears throat> they tell you it's not a Chinese idea. It came from Poland um, who asked to engage with China uh, more often, more frequently. And, and, and then it, it sort of uh, tied into a group of countries that were all so somewhat frustrated in, in not being able to have a regular conversation with the Chinese leadership. Um, as it happens, the, the secretariat of the 60 plus one, as far as I know, is still in the uh, Waijiaopu in Beijing. Um, and, um, and that's where things are coordinated. Um, and that's um, 
uh, although there's been only one uh, meeting of the 16 plus one uh, in China itself, the other meetings have taken place um, in some of the 16. Um, it is, it is uh, very much um, a, a Chinese project. Um, what's interesting is really on the, on the receiving end, um, just like in many other issues, some of them um, Jamie mentioned, um, there's a shift of mood within some of the uh, 16 plus one countries. They, I mean, there have been many um, uh, MOUs and, uh, you know, memorandum of understandings and, and, and um, various statements that's been signed on the BRI and things like that. And um, the, the deliveries, particularly in terms of um, investments, have not necessarily been um, so obvious. Um, we'll see what happens. But obviously, you know, in, in, as I said, there was a crucial year, which was 2008, where uh, China suddenly uh, made some strong inroads uh, economically um, in the EU. Um, they kind of spotted the, a, a weak point in Eastern Europe as Europe was going through this sort of financial crisis, the Euro debt crisis. And of course, some of the Eastern European and Central European states felt somewhat uh, abandoned by Western Europe, which is not really true, by the way, because they've been funding coming from Brussels uh, permanently. But somewhat there was this um, uh, alternative model again that, that came up. Having said that, uh, there are debates in Eastern Europe, um, and some of the debates uh, uh, are about, you know, who is actually helping uh, the development of these countries on the long run better? Is it China or is it the EU? Um, and uh, I mean, for the talks of uh, Viktor Orban um, uh, and a few others, the Czech president and the, the Polish leadership, um, uh, on the long run, the, the EU is actually the one supporting, you know, um, Eastern European um, infrastructures and connectivity. Now, of course, there's a high-speed train line being built between Belgrade and Budapest, but it's actually being built m mainly on the Serbian side, not so much on the Hungarian side, because Hungary didn't go through the, um, you know, European procedures, and um, so it's much slower. It will, it will be achieved eventually, but, but I'm, I mean, to answer your question, uh, Walter, I'm sorry to take so long. Um, I think you know China has shifted. At, at times, from uh, looking at, at, at the EU as a bloc, like in 2004, when, when the enlargements to 12 new countries made, build the EU as a group of 28 nations, gradually, uh, to uh, a few years later when the economic crisis revealed the weaknesses in Southern Europe and Eastern Europe in particular. Therefore, it went back to the bilateral relationship with the strong countries of Europe and the, the three largest economies, which happen to be also the, the you know where where technologies are, where, where the market is, where you know there are more benefits for for Chinese companies to invest in the UK, uh, in France and Germany. I mean, Germany's case is particularly interesting with all these uh, Mittelstand, these companies that that with technologies that that China has acquired many of them. So I think you know now we, we're looking at as I said, different levels. The EU level is still there. Uh, the, the, would, the, the three largest countries are still there on a bilateral basis. And then you have Southern Europe, Eastern Europe, the Nordics. Yeah, it just occurs to me that the, the relationship uh, between the 
nation states and the EU is also a complex one. And the Chinese are tapping into that, that complexity to their advantage. And even though it's sort of at a, that's at a big strategic level, I think, for the Chinese, um, I think it also applies to the way the U.S. engages with the EU. I mean, I, I agree with everything that um, Jamie said, essentially, about the need to engage the EU. There are, there are appropriate ways, and there are ways to engage the EU in their competencies, because it's a reality. I mean, they, they have responsibility for trade, right? Who else are you going to talk about a trade agreement with? You have to, you have to talk to the EU. Um, but if you bring the EU into areas where it doesn't have the competency, um, you might defeat sort of lower-level tactical uh, prerogatives of the United States, not, not the big strategic things that the Chinese are working on, but tactical things. So, so what I mean is, say, you open it up a uh, discussion about security in Asia broadly to EU membership, just by force of having more numbers, you end up not talking about real security issues. You talk about the things that the EU has the ability to address, trade and assistance, and they will tell you, well, military doesn't matter, right? And, and some, of the, some of the states that don't have the assets also will tell you the military stuff doesn't matter because they don't have the assets to devote to it. And then you find yourself outnumbered. You know, so, I, so the point is just I think we have to also be smart as Americans about how we engage the EU to, to, uh, to achieve our own sort of uh, tactical markers along the way to this cooperation. Um, let me open up to questions from the audience right here. Um, Ms. Fallon, you alluded to the foreign direct investment mechanism that's in, in production. And then, uh, Mr. Flaw, you were talking about how once that's up and going, it has to have some sort of alignment with CFIUS. Um, that said, CFIUS is principally concerned with uh, national security matters, whereas Europe, as uh, you have alluded to, is not a military uh, power. So. My, my question is, what would be on the portfolio for that FDI mechanism if it's, if it's not um, national security matters? I can give you two examples. What happened in the UK, what triggered it was, because the UK already did have a FDI screening mechanism, but under uh, Theresa May, when she first came into office, the Hinckley nuclear um, power station, which was going to be jointly built with China, she is home office. I mean, that's her background, and she wanted to have some sort of screening mechanism put in place because she thought this was really not good for Britain. So that's kind of what started in the UK. And my personal view is that, you know, three years ago, no one would talk about it in Europe. But what happened with the KUKA sale, there are 12 robotics companies in Germany. KUKA is number one, the, the top. If you go online and look at the YouTube ad, there's a mechanical arm playing ping pong with the world's leading ping pong player. And so the Chinese are like, that's a company we got to buy. So it's really important robotics company. And researchers have discovered that Medea, it's a white um, goods company, which bought KUKA, a leading robotics maker. Now within two months, this was kind of absorbed into the matrix of the Chinese uh, military political system or uh, company system. So in two months, German engineers were designing things for the PLA, People's Liberation Army. So if you think about that, if Europeans are having a difficult time meeting their you know, goals of NATO spending, but then they're selling um, you know, defense equipment or dual-use goods to China, which is helping build up their military machine, 
it could have a negative knock-on effect for transatlantic relations. So I think after that, I mean, the Chinese were able to buy it. It was for sale. There was no, no regulations to stop them from buying that. But you could really see a change in German response. So nobody wants to take on China alone because they're worried about their companies being penalized. Um, so they, you know, joined forces with France and Italy, and they they submitted a letter because no one wants to be, you know, out there alone. So I think that's when things really turned around. So I would say the the inflection point was KUKA for mainland Europe, and then the Hinkley Point sale in in the UK. And then, can I just jump in on that? My main point in that area is we can have the best CFIUS process we want in the U.S., and we can block not just Chinese or any other country that we feel is trying to exploit our technology and block those sales. But if our closest military allies don't have some sort of screening mechanism, at the end of the day, a lot of that is useless from the U.S. perspective because they can get a lot of the technology we're also concerned about from France or Germany or the U.K. if they want to. Um, you look at the case of Huawei, which is interesting, because in the U.S. now, I think Huawei is, although I think they're still trying to find inroads, has been basically blocked. Um, I think most of our European allies have not pursued a similar course, which is very concerning if you look at the long-term implications of the telecommunications infrastructure. Some of this also comes down to intel sharing. Um, not all of our European allies have the capacity to do that sort of analysis about a particular Chinese entity. Uh, about the risk uh, to do an analysis of the risk assessment. That's an area where I think the U.S. has actually stepped in already on a case-by-case -case basis and tried to find ways to share information. Um, there are probably uh, ways that that dialogue can be more regularized and structured. Um, but, you know, we don't need, again, at the end of the day, the exact same screening mechanism, but I think we need some sort of coordination and discussion about how we're both approaching uh, these issues. And, and if I could just do one follow-up, even though... The Chinese tend to invest in, you know, like ports, electric grids, things like that, which are kind of the commanding heights of an economy. And so I think that these do have national security implications. And just to follow up on your point about Huawei, their headquarters is in Hungary, which is quite an interesting choice to put their headquarters. And European rules are very generous. So if a company is created or in Europe, I mean, it's Huawei headquarters is based in Europe, they receive... European research funds. So they're a recipient of Horizon 2020 funding. So European taxpayers are helping Huawei improve their technology. Uh, yeah, right there, Riley. Hi, Riley Walters from the Heritage Foundation. Um, this is open up to the panel. Uh, do you see any limitations to China's sort of uh, economically-led outbound influence, either in the BRI or just uh, in general? Sort of built-in limitations. Uh, built-in limitations. I mean, obviously, you know, you can you only have so much money at the end of the day, right? And so, what are some of the limits that China's faced on on uh, you know how much how many ports it can buy, how many construction sites can manufacture, things like that. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I'll just say a few words because it's a, it's a very uh, loose subject uh, as, as the BRI is, uh, dare I say. Uh, first of all, who is part of the BRI and who is not? You have a list of 70 countries now. Um, I think, Jamie, you mentioned Africa as not being part of BRI, but not so sure about that. I mean, if you look at the map, you know, many countries of Africa are actually part of BRI. Um, so you're talking about now, I mean, this sort of the original concept 
of Eurasia, you know, BRI being the road to Europe. Yes, Europe is the destination. I mean, it's one of the destinations. Perhaps, you know, economically makes more sense, you know, the, the, the markets and all this. But it's more like a concept now. And um, so when you have a concept, um, you know, you can, you can mm -hmm. take or leave things out of it. Um, and, um, and now the idea behind this concept is uh, joint projects, cooperation, joint ventures, uh, winning hearts and minds, uh, getting, getting local governments to support local banks, local institutions, local companies. That's not going to be easy. Um, so I think the main hurdle is going to be that, to be basically, if the list goes on until like, uh, you know, up to f 200 countries, I, I mean, yes, you can, you can see the idea, but uh, it's going to be a long and risky path, I would say, to, to convince all these people to, to go behind this idea. By the way, you know, the West is not very good at proposing uh, uh, alternatives, uh, but... Uh, at the same time, it's it's become such a sort of an open house that um, it it could go one one way or another. I think. Just do a quick follow up. Um, BRI is a, such a brilliant branding exercise. It's almost like the China Dream. Remember when everyone was like, "What does it mean?" So it gets everyone talking about it, and it's kind of got a similar alliteration to what they used at the Olympics, like one world, one dream. So one belt, one road. So I don't know who their marketing people are, but they seem to like this. And then all the barbarians were wondering what the one belt is, one road. So they dropped the O's and made a BRI. But we see that it's very elastic. So even projects that existed before the BRI are you know, folded into the narrative. For example, the Piraeus Port Project in Greece that started before the BRI narrative did. And so that's successful, so it's folded into the BRI narrative. But um, we also know that there are a lot of red elephants along the way, what locals along the original Silk, Silk Route, for example, in Georgia, they, we would call them white elephants, but locals call them red elephants. So there wasn't a lot of feedback loops, and there have been many articles written now about you know the lack of finance. Money hasn't been spent well. And even the Chinese will say, well, we haven't been very good at these investments. But... I'll give you an example of what happened in May in Beijing at BARF. They're not very good at acronyms sometimes. So it's uh, the Belt and Road Forum. And uh, Yerke Katainen, the vice president of uh, the European Commission, maintained – I was actually quite surprised because he managed to maintain discipline – uh, with the member states there, and the Chinese were trying to lure each one away and asking them to sign this document. But Yerke Katainen made everyone, you know, follow the rules, and nobody signed, much to China's shock and surprise. So because it's a transport issue and trade issue, it's a Brussels, uh, you know, Brussels can say you cannot sign that. So in the meantime, some have signed just a bilateral agreement, but overall the EU has not signed on. And even um, a Brexited UK... When Theresa May went to Beijing, they really thought they had her over a barrel because she wants to be global and she's really in a corner. And she didn't sign on either. And the three reasons are lack of transparency, not an equal playing field. And, you know, they want standards and norms to be observed. So it's not that easy. I mean, China's having a very difficult time getting the Europeans on board. And the example of the rail that uh, Philippe had mentioned, Serbia is not a member of the EU. And so China can go through there, they can put their European, the Chinese workers in there, but they can't do the same thing in Hungary. And we saw what happened with Poland when they were trying to build a road. The Chinese had the best bid, it was the lowest bid, but they assumed all the lessons learned in Africa they could apply in Europe, and the Europeans get very upset with this narrative. But 
they couldn't bring in Chinese workers. And then they were wondering, what in the world is a frog tunnel? So, you know, when you build a road in Europe, you have to put a frog tunnel underneath. So Chinese workers weren't familiar with that. And it almost became a situation where they were losing face because they had won the bid, but they couldn't really deliver. And the project failed. So there were there are several incidents where, you know, the Chinese don't under really, really understand the European rules. Europeans are often... Um, accused of not understanding China, but this, these are some examples of how things don't really work out when Europe, when China tries to do investments in Europe. Let me, uh, let, let me ask a question to oh, Jamie, because we got a question uh, from, the, from the internet, um, and I think you may have covered this, but maybe you could, you could summarize it a little bit. Uh, the question is from Dana Marshall. He asks, to what extent is the Trump administration actually already trying to work cooperatively with the EU and member states on managing Chinese China's rise, and how do you assess progress? I, I think it's still very early, so it's hard to assess uh, the progress. I mean, part of it is just that institutional problem where we don't have, where there's not a lot happening in the US-EU dialogue space. I have talked to Trump administration officials who work on Europe who understand that this is an area where there are converging interests. Um, I haven't seen it rise to the highest levels yet uh, within the Trump administration. Partly that's just due to some of the personnel issues we all know about, um, you know, vacancies and top officials turning over. But like I said, it's, it's actually mentioned in the national security strategy as an area for transatlantic cooperation. So I think the people who put together that strategy understood it. I will say the interesting thing to watch, despite uh, I, I think the, the danger of the recent Trump trade actions to all of this cooperation the working level, my sense is the working level dialogue between trade officials on both sides of the Atlantic uh, is much stronger than the political conversation about things like connectivity, for instance. Um, there are people at, at USTR uh, and their counterparts at DG Trade in Brussels who, not just during this administration, but I think uh, going back several administrations, have those regular consultations about a variety of trade issues. And so I think on the trade front, there actually are some avenues that can be pursued uh, to work through the different approaches right now. Um, I think we need to broaden that, though, to some of the political leadership once people get into their positions. Yeah, I guess it is a matter of the political leadership because um, I, I guess at, at working levels, we do have contact on these issues and they do tee up you know, North Korea or those sorts of things for a high-level um, agreement. But, but, yeah, that doesn't seem to me much... Uh, much going on yet for all the reasons that you you suggest. Um, yeah, we have a microphone for you. I'm Dr. Runger. I'm a medical practitioner here in Washington area. I work with Dr. Moffat from time to time. He asks me questions, and I try to answer them. Uh, most of this is somewhat new to me, but I was wondering about two things. Uh, after Friday, I was wondering, since we're talking about Europe, how strong is NATO? We only heard from two European nations that were participating in that operation. Has, has NATO disappeared? I think Teresa should answer that question. <laughs> oh, thanks for the hard one. <laughs> so you're, when you're asking, has NATO disappeared, in which context? Well, where was it on Friday? How many nations does it have? Well, those are very political questions. I mean, I, I'm very happy that there was some participation from EU members. Two nations? No. Okay. Well, I, I think you answered that well. The other question that I have as a non-economist is, 
Could you comment about tariffs? Are all tariffs bad? Or are they a useful trading bargaining chip? Should we always stay away from tariffs? Um, well, the, the, uh, I mean, I could, I could address the, the tariff question. But uh, on NATO, I mean, just to say, I think, I think part, of, part of the countries that were a part of that, you know, volunteered for that is a function of their capability. Not all of the, not all of the NATO states have as much capability as the French and the, and the British do. Um, I don't know that it needed to be a NATO operation in order to be, be effective. We're already cooperating with the French and British there on a regular basis. And so I think that probably lends, that, that has probably something to do with it. Um, but I think NATO generally is, NATO is healthy generally. I don't, I don't get a, a sense that it's, that it's disappearing. Um, on the tariff issue, I mean, at Heritage we have sort of a, uh, a natural disposition against tariffs um, because we support economic freedom and consumer choice and all the rest in the U.S. and the U.S. market. Um, but I think um, I think in these particular cases they haven't been that useful uh, to addressing the problem. I mean, we, we, President Trump activated a law from. Uh, you know, 50 years old to to impose tariffs on globally on traders in steel and aluminum for national security reasons, all of which seem to be suspect. I mean, if you read the arguments for why it's a national security uh, concern, they don't really hold much water because we already have enough steel and aluminum in the United States to deal with our national security needs. Um, so, so then you got to ask, well, then if that's not the objective, then what is the objective? And the only thing you can come down to is it's protection of the aluminum and steel industry in the United States for political reasons, for maybe, maybe idealistic reasons. He and members of his administration think that we should have people employed in the steel industry for, for some reason other than, you know, that, that it increases, uh, um, you know, the value to consumers and Americans and everything else. But, you know, it's all largely political. So um, I wouldn't say tariffs are always bad. I mean, we have lots of tariffs, and they're uh, part of our revenue structure and everything else. But uh, I personally, and Heritage as, a, as an institution, has generally had a disposition opposed to tariffs. Michal Safianik with the EU delegation in D.C. Uh, thank you very much for these uh, thoughtful presentations and the work you're doing on uh, this issue. Um, I have a question um, looking forward to the upcoming year. Last year, uh, we had um, political leadership solidifying in, in all these three spaces that you're talking about, uh, the election of uh, President Trump, uh, the 19th Party Congress in China, a few elections in uh, the European Union. And now it seems that uh, these are uh, stable. So what do you think um, the constellation of these political powers in these uh, uh, regions and spaces, what opportunities does it create in concrete terms uh, in the upcoming year or two? Thank you. So um, I'll just speak on that. Um, first of all, I mean, yes, it's true that you look at the 19th Party Congress, this is a five-year term. Um, some people say that it might go beyond five terms in terms of the, of the uh, current president, but that's not, that's not a taken. Um, so 
basically the 19th Party Congress, as every party congress, is, is a very important moment that defines you know, a period of five years. And, and, and I think what, what, what we heard in, in, in uh, President Xi's uh, uh, speeches about uh, China being at the center of things and taking center stage is very, very important. So it's, it was a particularly important um, moment. Um, in, in Europe, of course, there have been elections. Some of them went faster than others, or, or perhaps the coalition governments that were put together, in, particularly in Germany, were, you know, took a long time. Um, now, I don't know what's going to happen in terms of you know, um, um, the, you know, France, Germany taking the lead in many uh, European projects. But obviously, you know, the lack of leadership has been a problem over the past few years. And, and, um, and, and, and going back to what um, uh, Jamie was saying about about you know um, the U.S. not having a, 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 an ambassador to the EU. It's obviously uh, not helping the, the dialogue. So there's lack of stability on that front. But there's obviously a very strong uh, uh, leadership in the in the U.S. as well, with both the the um, the executive and legislative branch um, belonging to the same party. Um, so I, I think you know there's there's obviously uh, um, uh, moment there's a momentum for. Uh, uh, strong uh, um, dialogues, partnerships. There's certainly going to be a, a strong EU-China uh, um, um, discussion this year. There will be a. There will be. <laughs> there might not be an EU-US uh, uh, summit, but there will be an EU-China summit. That's for sure. Uh, whether it will be very uh, um, uh, productive, I don't know. It's still under uh, under discussions, but but that. That you know, there will be things, and in the meantime, of course, they they are working on the connectivity platform and all this. As you well know, since you work for the EU um, delegation, um, where where I think we have an opportunity, and this is going back to the main theme of the conversation that that um, Walter has convened here, is is really the transatlantic uh, discussion on uh, on on the um, not not just the emergence, but the confirmation of, of, a, of, a, of a new player in the ge ge geopolitical stage that is now acknowledging its willingness to be, um, to be at center stage. So I think this is, this is where I think that the, we, we have to, to start you know, uh, moving quickly. Can I just jump in? The, um, I, I'm a bit pessimistic, honestly. I, I think you're right that obviously we at least know who our leaders are going to be for the, for the next few years. Um, theoretically. Uh, the problem is I, I look at the transatlantic space and we're all distracted. Um, certainly here in the U.S. I mean, we just conducted military strikes against Syria on uh, Friday night, I guess, and no one's talking about that anymore. Everyone's moved on. It's all domestic debates uh, about investigations, just broader partisan fights. And I don't think that's going to change in the U.S. for the foreseeable future. And in Europe, too, Yes, you have leaders like Macron, who's trying to drive a certain agenda, but European governments, uh, are many of them are still, I'd say, struggling to grapple with how to deal with these populist forces in their own countries. I think it's going to be a recurring issue in Germany, uh, how to handle the AFD. Uh, and as Merkel ends her tenure probably in the next several years, I, I don't know that we're going to have strong, assertive leaders on both sides of the Atlantic. And so it's really going to be a challenge, I think, to focus on some of these longer-term issues. Like I said, I think there's a, a uh, coherent agenda you could develop for transatlantic cooperation in this space, but it's not something that's going to come easy. The other challenge we're going to have from the U.S. perspective as well is I think the U.S. 
leadership is going to be very focused when it comes to Asia on North Korea, certainly in the next six weeks, perhaps uh, the rest of the year, depending on how that, whether that summit happens, how the summit goes, what the response is, uh, the potential of some sort of confrontation. Um, so I think that's going to be a major challenge. I do think the trade actions that the Trump administration have taken uh, are perhaps, although I don't agree with all of them, and I share Heritage's and Walter's skepticism about tariffs, I think they have at least begun to move the conversation forward. Uh, everyone knew that Donald Trump had these views about trade, uh, but for the first 13, 14 months, the administration didn't do anything on the trade front uh, other than start to renegotiate some old agreements. Uh, this, uh, pro these proposals have actually pushed forward, I'd say, the U.S.-EU conversation about trade. And then you get things like I mentioned before, the European uh, proposal to restart TTIP. I don't know if that will happen. Or you get in a meeting with senators, the president saying, telling his team to reassess TPP. Uh, these are now happening because I think the president is thinking through this longer-term China challenge, and uh, his team are starting to develop a more coherent trade agenda. And I think uh, we don't know where that will go, but I do think it's a good thing that the U.S. is at least beginning, this administration is beginning to think more strategically about trade in a way they weren't uh, for the first uh, year plus of the administration. Teresa, you have the final word. Just to... There's kind of an elephant in the room here. Uh, everyone's being so polite. But in Europe, you know, there is this concern about the Trump administration. Uh, at Brookings, Constanze Steisenmuller, who's German, wrote a paper, Normal is Over. So the question is, uh, after this Trump administration, what will the relationship look like? Because she says it's been, you know, that normal is over. The um, transatlantic relationship is really going through a crisis period. That's her version. Um, that's one point. And then... Uh, the five-year term, I mean, Xi Jinping, uh, it's really kind of downplayed in Europe. But I would say for some policymakers, the scales have you know, fallen from their eyes. We've seen two recent papers by European think tanks about China's authoritarian influence. Their in, uh, and um, ECFR recently did a paper on power audit of China. So both of these papers uh, did not make the Chinese mission in Brussels very happy because they're looking at Chinese influence activities. So I would say there's really been a turning point in this triangular relationship. And the narrative that the Europeans usually had towards China is that we, we'll help you reform. You know, we're going to help you reform. And with uh, Xi Jinping kind of being the emperor of everything for maybe a very long time, it changes the narrative. So I think the Europeans almost are, have lost their balance on this. They're not really quite sure how to look at China because their reform narrative has to be retired. And for the last two years, the EU-China meeting, they've never been able to sign a statement. So that's a sign or barometer of the, the relationship. And um, we saw with Trump pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement the Europeans are like, okay, China, let's sign a, you know, this is our chance to make a statement together. And the Chinese were actually quite transactional about it. So they, you know, they, they wanted something in return and the Europeans weren't willing to give them market economy status. So that, they didn't do that. So uh, it's very transactional. The, and I think that might be the last time now for a while at least that this kind of embracing of China as a way to hedge against the United States that the Europeans have tended to do in the past, for example, in 2003 with uh, Iraq, I think they might not do that any longer. So here's my question for you and the EU global strategy. Now, the Europeans tend to say, oh, we don't do ge geopolitics. But 
now that they live in this new world, and you mentioned these geopolitical issues, you know, as to rephrase Tolstoy, you might not be interested in geopolitics, but geopolitics is interested in you. So how are they going to respond? That's a good point. Well, um, I guess I have the final word. Um, you know, I, 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 don't, uh, I don't share Jamie's hope on trade for reasons that I won't get into, and maybe he and I can talk about that later. Um, but I do have hope sort of uh, opposed to this sort of thesis that uh, normal is over in that I talked to two people on this recent trip, one in London and one in Paris, both prominent intellectuals, and both of them told me that um, the environment now on Trump bear some similarity to the environment about Bush, and that they each cited German uh, diplomats as telling them that it's all over and that you, we don't recognize you anymore and that sort of thing during the Bush administration, and now they're hearing the same thing again. So that's not a, a knock on the Germans as much as it is to say that these are sort of common uh, anxieties in Europe that we go through all the time, and so maybe it's not the end of the world. So with that, let's uh, let's leave it there and uh, thank thank the panelists for joining us for the discussion. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Yeah, yeah.